Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast. I am your host, Elisa von Jürgen Forgi, and I am here with my co-host, Irene Victoria Massimino. And we are very honored to be joined today by Nimat Ahmadi, a survivor of the Darfur genocide and the founder and executive director of the Darfur Women Act- Action Group, DWAG. She has been a tireless advocate for genocide prevention and one of the first women leaders in this field. Um, we will be speaking to her today about genocide prevention, about the situation in Sudan, and about the ongoing genocide in Darfur. Thank you so much for joining us, Nimat. Um, it's my pleasure, and thank you for having me. Yeah, we are so excited to have you. We really, really, really are grateful that you took time out of what we know is your really busy schedule to come and speak to us. Absolutely. This is something that we're doing it together. So it's my pleasure to add my voice to what you guys are doing. This is wonderful that you created this podcast and that we can get the chance to educate more people and bring more people to, to our movement. Great. Thank you very much, Nimat, and welcome to our podcast. I hope we can have you another time. We haven't even started, and I'm thinking of another interview already. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, and I'm totally excited. Yeah, I hope this is a continuing conversation Mm -hmm. between all of us, for sure, in many different ways. Absolutely. So, Nimat, why don't we start so that our listeners can um, get to know you a little bit. Why don't we start a little bit with your history and how that has driven your current work. Well, um, yes, it, it's a very long story, but I, um, I, I try my best to be brief for the, um, but we, the content conversation will continue. I'm originally from Darfur, and I, I believe many people may have heard about Darfur that has been going on through a genocide that uh, continued to go on for almost two decades. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, my history, I grew up in a very large extended family and in a very loving small city in North Darfur called Cap Kabir, whereby people are so loving, for so supportive to each other, like you are expected to get help even if like, well, like you are in, a need, in need for help uh, from a passerby. So, uh, but uh, we also grow up learning from my family like uh, my dad is a prominent leader but like in within our context being a leader being very responsible of everyone so it's not fun to be a leader so we are expected to take care of him. so that kind of like it was in my dna and i growing up i was like a very a curious argumentative child you know like kind of like troublemaker but it's a good <laughs> as uh, congressman uh, late congressman john john lewis said good I trouble want, good I trouble want. yeah and i'm very like intrigued by things i see around me in my society and I was like the first person from among my sisters to go to college so i was like i felt a lot of responsibility because i felt i was educated not only by my family but I felt I was educated by my community because people were sure. Mm-hmm. Like when you you have my, I finished um, like elementary school, going to middle school, there was a celebration. You finish um, middle school, going to high school, there was a celebration. And from high school going to college, even bigger celebrations. So I felt like I am responsible because I had that opportunity to be supported by everyone and my success was their success. So mm-hmm. I felt... Uh, I can't wait to graduate and go back and help my people mm-hmm. before they graduated uh, because I love to volunteer. I love to work in the community, organizing charity food drive or organizing a group of young people to go into an elderly uh, person to clean their house or de- um, de- deliver water or do something uh, for them. So I always have people around me even um, at a very young age. And my first activism I started it was in the middle of school when uh, we had an issue with the school system whereby they asked the student to do things for their teachers but it, we love our teachers and we have a great relationship but there are some of them that are like if you want a permission to go out to 
like this is the people who are living in the dormitories or so they tell them a condition you have to do this for us then you can go and if you refuse then you are not so when i was i learned about that i had to because I wasn't living in the dorm. Most people in the dorm were okay. people out of town. So I didn't know that was like advocacy or changing school policy. But I was like, you know what? I want to speak about this. And I didn't tell my family, but I told them, you know what? But in order for me to speak, I have to move to the dorm and experience it. So that oh, wow. I said, you know what? So that's why, like, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm a real, real troublemaker. Yeah. So you <laughs> moved to the dorms? You moved, You actually moved to the dorms? I did. I was <laughs> very good in my school. Amazing. The head of the school was, like, very good. We, I had very good relationship. And we were, it was, like, toward our end of the middle school, going to high school. So I told my family, I was like, they were complaining that I don't study much. And I told them, you know what? The head <laughs> wants us to move into the dorms so that we can have regular, like, studying together and he would month I was like oh that's great so they made my cookies they prepare my bed my blanket everything and like a small suitcase I never had before I went to the dorm I experienced the issue and then we wrote a letter organized a protest and wrote a letter to the administration of the school the school administration and we were able to remove that condition and then they changed the teacher who was in charge of that the dorm management, so she's no longer. So they asked us, which teacher you want? And I was like, oh, Zahara, because she was the, the, the friendlier, the very understanding, supportive kind of. And I was like, wow, we can change things. So I really like it. And then after that, I volunteered when I was like in high school. I had my first job. That was not a norm in our community. Like, yeah. Don't work. I was like 15 years old and I had this. I went to volunteer and I was like hired by Oxfam in mm. one of their projects. And I came back, I was like, Mom, I was just there to volunteer. I don't know if I can handle it. She was like, Be up to it, just like mm-hmm. work hard. So then that opened up my eyes to issues that sometimes, like, there are issues you can do, but there are ways also you can change things. And then I started like learning about development projects, relief, emergency relief, humanitarian. And then I started about like human rights issues. And I grew up in a very liberal family. Mm. My dad was very supportive to women. So mm. I didn't know that women are oppressed in my society until one day my dad came and I asked, asked my sister to, to work in for this agency so that can change the perception of the community to allow women to work with international NGOs. That was like, oh, even that an issue? I didn't feel it, Hmm. but that was. So that kind of created my, um, my, like my motivation and to involve in like um, humanitarian human rights issues. And when I came to college, I saw the disparity between the center in Khartoum versus the peripheries, like the region mm. where I came from and lack of development, discrimination, clear discrimination. Sometimes people insult you by the region you come from or your ethnic background or the way you look. And that even motivated me. So I was like so happy um, to go back and work with my community. So when I graduated, I went and I was lucky to get a job with the same organization with Oxfam GB um, in North Darfur, and I was so happy that I could travel everywhere around the the the, the Darfur region, uh, where we provide capacity building, like development projects with women, and uh, working on women empowerment, um, providing training for farmers to increase their productivity, mm. Mm. literacy classes. Um, primary is like um, kindergarten school and things like that. So it was like so fun, but you also see the impact. Like you work with the community and the next year they tell you, this is how your project has changed our life. And this is how it impacted us. So I was so excited and felt like exactly I'm doing what I was supposed to be doing. So my plan was um, what I do I will work about two, three years and I am here to help my family and help my community. Then I will go back and do my master's and then I will create my own consulting company because I learned in college that most of the issues was created by the lack of the bad development policies. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be like a development strategist 
to influence the way the government worked. Um, then all of a sudden, one day, we went to the rural area um, in my near my hometown, in the suburban of my hometown, while we had a village committee training. Uh, we finished the first village. We moved into the next village. And then when we finished on our way back, we found the village and the people that we left, they were frantic. Many people have been wounded. Some have been killed. And it was just um, unbelievable situation. And we we stopped. We couldn't talk. We don't know what to say. because. And then we asked the people. They told us that they saw the army coming. They welcomed them just like you would welcome your soldiers. And they served them with food and water under the shade of a tree. And then a man uh, the, in uniform started like taking people's belongings. And uh, another man from the community stood up and said, it's like, why are you doing this? They shot him in the head. And that's how it was wow. started. So mm. after that, our organization, we we fit some people who are wounded in a serious condition. We brought them to the city and then we took them to the hospital. But I learned the next day that the government has forced the doctor to release them, they don't want people to know about what the government was doing. I didn't know that was the government. I said it was just a lawless people who were like pretending to be an army. But unfortunately, later on, I learned that was the government army with Janjaweed militias who are going around attacking people in their villages. I didn't know about that it was a genocide. Um, I didn't know it was a systematic plan. We were just thinking insecurity. So our organization decided at that moment to cease its operation until we see how the situation may improve. So I stayed home and then one day in the morning, my mom was like sleeping and she was like, why you guys are sleeping? You don't know what's going on. And I was like, what? I get up and I took my shoes. I went into the gate of our house and I see the smoke coming from different direction. Um, like, Later on, we learned that about 50 villages um, around my hometown were destroyed completely and burned. You would see children running naked, barefoot, uh, with no um, adult accompanying them. They are running for their life coming into my home city. We learned that many villages were burned down to the ground. People from my hometown pick up their themselves and try to go so that they can go and eat those who need uh, help or bury the, the dead. The government issued a decree that is preventing nobody to cross the valley. Like hmm. the valley is the main divider between the city and the rural area. They said no one could cross the valley, otherwise it will be shot or who, it, who will, it, they will be shot. So people sneak uh, women around and young people in bicycles to go taking with them like water like we have this norm of like if people are at risk or being shot at or like they are hungry for many days people give them like they mix make kind of like porridge type to, so people took that a lot and they were running in the streets so down the way like finding people who are fleeing for their lives so I felt like I can't just stay home and watch that happening so um, first, like when that happened, people in my hometown, including my brother as, and other people I know, they created this group of volunteers who are going around collecting money, collecting clothing, finding places for people who are fleeing and coming to the, the, the city to find places to stay. Then uh, the government accused them that they are destabilizing peace in the city and mm -hmm. they were all arrested. Uh, overnight, we don't know where they were for uh, for a year later, until they were they were taken to the far away region in the north, like it's like about two thousand miles away. Um, uh, my two brothers were arrested, tortured. My the third brother went looking for them, asking the, the police that he was beaten, tortured. So it was a very sad situation. But then we women took on the role of going out immediately after that to help the needy. And I was like, you know, we are dying anyways, but I'm not going to sit by and die underneath my bed hiding. I want to go and, and like surviving was not an option for me. I know 100% that I was dying, but then mm. I want to choose how to die. 
Wow. So choosing, I choose, I, I will be dying in, in the middle of my people whereby I go out and help. So, it, and it wasn't only me, but it was like a group of women who created this like underground mobile meetings uh, whereby we go and find out information about people arrived, recently arrived, and if there are like rape incidents, if there are people who are wounded, they are left behind. We try to arrange for them to get treatment and um, receive food. There was no way for people to set up a camp because the government soldier will come and beat people up when they sat under the shade of trees within the mm. town. So until today, if you went to my hometown, there is no separate camp. There are people living within the host community. So we go knock on the doors like, hey, Dr. Lee said you have a place in your yard where two families can put a tent. And you say, yes, um, of course, they, they're welcome to come. And they come and they, then the community will help them to have like their, wow. what they need until we can figure that out. So people just open their homes. Mm. And so we were going. Um, and then, so it was, then after that, a year later, the government felt threatened because like, the incident was documented. So we also work heavily in documenting the incidents, mm -hmm. sending information overseas. So we felt like we were very isolated. There was no international NGOs operating. There was not even national NGOs allowed to come to Darfur. So we were just like dying in silence. Mm -hmm. So we figured out like to reach out to our people in the diaspora. So we will send people. And at that moment, like digital like communication was not this advanced yeah. so you have like a, a like you know a camera that work with a film in it you send young people or you go sneak into the hospital taking pictures of people who are wounded and then you have to take the film all the way down to somewhere so that you can send it overseas to be printed and that is how we were able to internationalize the issue of Darfur but then the government realized that the information started going out. So they said, oh, mainly people from these communities that are like um, under attack, they, who, those who are working for international NGOs, they are the ones who are passing information. And now we become even more targeted. Sure. So I like, escaped barely like two attempts on my life, after which I had to leave. But then working on genocide prevention becomes something very personal to me um, because of what I have seen. We have helped people in our hand. They pass right um, in front of us, our eyes. Mm, yeah. People who have been victims of rape, who have been impacted and died as a result of rape young people who've been abandoned by their families because their families now start feeling the stigma. It was a shock. Like yeah. All of that happened in a matter of months. So mm -hmm. people don't know how to process. So it was re the rejection was easy. Being a woman, being a child, girl, it's easy to leave you behind because you are bringing shame to that family. Being a wife that have been raped, it's easy for the man to abandon you. And that was the biggest issue that we have noticed and we start immediately working to communicate with um, members of um, the affected communities, like reaching out to the, uh, uh, the older men, elderly men mm. in the community, to sheikh leaders, traditional leaders, reaching out to older women in the family to tell them that this is not their fault. They need us. They need us to stand up for them. This ha something happened by the perpetrated by the enemy to intentionally to weaken our community yes so exactly. people start understanding and but it was hard to reverse the course of action that mm -hmm. first happened then after that um then when the situation become intense the government realized we were work doing the work that they don't want us to do to, to rescue our people so that we were targeted so i had to leave um my hometown I had to leave my country it wasn't an easy decision for me but it become obvious that either or like even um, I have to stay or get killed or I have to leave and be safe but that was not a good option for me I was like why would I be safe while everyone is dying and facing rape and sure. um, the brutalization so I'm what is special about me but most of my friends that you are 
outspoken if you stay you definitely will not only be killed but you your family will be targeted and eliminated so but you also have a voice if you leave you will be a voice for your people so that resonate with me and my mom said to me nima if you leave you can be a voice for your people if exactly. you stay, we may all die and mm. that and with that hope i had to leave so when i left i didn't know where i was going wow i didn't have a place i didn't have a plan and i never thought i would leave my family like even when people talking about going overseas i feel like you know what you can be successful anywhere yeah. and i i'm able to receive my education and everything here this is a place where i want to invest what i have built with the support mm-hmm. from the community but unfortunately that wasn't an option so i had to leave i left the sudan uh, i went to kenya i stayed there for two years it was the hardest two years of my life mm-hmm. i did not have a job i did not have a refugee status and i wow. did not have like family friends oh, there's like a few people from my region but that's it so and then i feel like i compromise my people including my own family so that feeling of guilt sure push me to the corner mm-hmm. i bounced back and i was like you know what i wanted to be of use i wanted to be a voice i so those like i keep on repeating those then i immediately start going to the regional meetings that happens in nairobi in addis and speaking about the situation in darfur mm-hmm. speaking about uh the need for the african union for the people from the region to stand up for the people of darfur that african people are at risk and that the government with the arab militias are eliminating wiping out african indigenous in sudan so that was like kind of motivate and then i organized a lot of writing campaign uh, among the diaspora so i collect information from sudan about what happened I pass it on and then write letters and circulate people from Europe, Canada and and and, and the United States and then we deliver the letters to the African Union and then to the uh, member state of the UN Security Council. Mm. So then that continue to do that but again I also feel it another abduction attempt in Kenya. I remember once like wow. uh, there has been a lot of conversation about um that forty attack on that forty women and I think the Kenyan civil society group organized a solidarity march um and mm-hmm. then they realized there must be someone on the ground doing so so wow no what happened but um yeah I was making a phone call and someone came in our compound trying to grab me from behind luckily I got the opportunity to come to the United States I was uh, I was accepted to a fellowship um for, uh, for more international for motor company international fellowship at Columbia University mm-hmm. and also I get an invitation from a community here an organization here to speak at a conference that they are organizing on that for so I came to the state and then applied for asylum I now even more motivated because I had this safe space and was able to use my voice even better so I in my fifth day I went out to speak like I came wow. in March of 2007 uh and after 5 days I went to Kenya University to a conference that uh on uh, genocide prevention where I met all the genocide scholars that's great uh, people who went to Darfur and went to Chad and were reporting back but then when I stood up and introduced myself I wasn't sure if people would understand me because I do speak English but this is an English speaking country and I'm here only for 5 days I was terrified <laughs> but I also want to speak so I spoke and then people start asking me I was like what it seems like they understand me amazing so then I that has built my confidence and I the next thing is that I in one year I traveled to over 24 states of the United States speaking to people wow. telling my story and stories of others urging them to stand up for the people of Darfur then i eventually i joined the save darfur movement i volunteered for them for about 6 months while i was getting my status and then uh, after that i joined them as an employee and so i participated in the million voice for darfur that we will go out and 
um, mobilize people in the United States to do. I eventually started traveling overseas. I didn't even have paper in the United States. I had this like travel document or whatever. Whenever I traveled, they questioned me. I was like, did you go to Sudan? I was like, hell no. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then I, when I was leaving, that is how the organization came up. up, up. Um, there were women who we worked together. And when I was leaving, there are people who supported me all the way morally, financially, and also they were they did not have a leverage of being able to travel, leaving their families. Some people have children. Some people are just not in position. Their family is not giving them that permission to leave. Even like if you have to stay to die, but their families are like, you are a woman, you can't travel. But that wasn't the case with me. So I felt I was indebted to this woman. So I promised them that I was like, wherever I go, if I am safe, I'm going to create an organization that not only recognize your plight, but also will recognize the effort that you currently have been doing to save your your community. And when I came here, as soon as I started working, I was like, you know what, I'm going to create that organization. And joining the anti-genocide movement in the state, I realized the biter suite of there is a movement, but also even though within all contexts of genocide and therefore is the best example, women have been the most impacted. Mm -hmm. It has been used mm -hmm. as a weapon of war, but they were not talking about women. They talk about how many people died, right. displaced, people have been forced to leave their homes, how many villages have been destroyed. But there hasn't been any number, approximate even number of women who have been raped. Hmm. And that kind of like triggered me. I was like, no, even in our own movement, mm -hmm. there is a huge gap. So I was like, this organization now is like now more than ever important to come into life. So I was here in, I started my work with Save Darfur Coalition in 2008, like January 2008. And Darfur Women Action Group was created in June of 2009. Wow. Wow. Amazing. And I, work 24 seven yeah run the organization avoiding conflict of interest because both organizations are working in the anti-genocide right yeah. that's hard uh, to so avoid. literally 24 seven with constant trouble <sighs> and uh, being away from home trying to communicate with my family the government was tapping phones sometimes i call and as soon as i say hello hear my mom's voice they cut the phone i yeah. sit there cry but yeah. i feel like you know what it's not time for me to cry i'm not crying i will wait to cry what the day when the people of that four are starting going back to their villages this is mm -hmm. i just convinced myself i sit here and hear that oh that was like a village or like 50 villages have been destroyed and 100 people have been killed uh, 100,000 people have been so i feel like get up and do something. So I start by like building relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, government official, diplomatic community, academic institution. How, that is how I get to know this wonderful person, mm -hmm. Dr. Um, Alisa. And, and then I was like, you know, we, our people had money. Yeah. The money wasn't an issue, did not protect them. The government wiped everything out. We need mm -hmm. to have relation people who can speak for them. Mm. People and exactly what what you say mm -hmm. so i start looking for people like-minded people and i just like um was able to go out of my way and sometimes some people can be like really discouraging to you, you <laughs> yes. yeah about. it happens a lot yes to then, women i think a lot. i think so too to women mm -hmm. and making it so attractive but as soon as you get there i was like well oh well I, we don't know what to do about it and I was like, you know mm -hmm. what? It's not about me anymore. It's, I'm not taking it personal. I have to have a thick skin. Mm -hmm. You are a genocide survivor. You are a refugee from Sudan. You are a woman. You are mm -hmm. black. You are all these liars. Mm -hmm. So I was like, you know, I know how much it takes for you to make headlines. Yes. So I was just like, you know, I was in like, getting offended if I ask people for a meeting. I was like, oh, no, we're not working in Darfur. You see them writing about Darfur. 
That's terrible. I assume you have an organization you may want money from them. So I run the organization <laughs> my own funding for seven years. Amazing. I just mm-hmm. decided not to ask nobody for funding. Mm-hmm. I was renting a small office near my other office mm-hmm. to run, taking my lunchtime to meet with my staff. I have uh, interns and volunteers. I didn't have paid staff then. I have a meeting. I One thing that saved my life and saved the organization my background on the strategic planning. So I was big in planning because I was like, if I can turn all my expertise, my knowledge into money, that would mm-hmm. be the that we ask other people to contribute. Yeah. So we draw the plan. Like if I want to do something next year, this time, I will have the plan from now because when you don't have funding, you, you better have the plan. <laughs> you better have a good plan. Yes. <laughs> Look for exactly. people who... We even like started creating all these criteria. Like there are partnership, big organization, nice event. They want to put their name, and they want to hijack it. But there are really, really good partners who empower and support you. Exactly. So we like working with like people like Genocide Watch, other mm-hmm. organizations, academic institutions like Georgetown, George Washington, the Center mm-hmm. for like African Studies, and or like Center for or like. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, women in Africa, public policy. And so we find people that like-minded people. Every day I was like, oh, wow, this is like really great. I met people like Dr. Greg Stanton uh, at a speaking event. And since then we become, I I don't even remember how I met Dr. Lisa Fergie and we become friends. Yeah. And now I have all these people from everywhere in the world that I can call friends. And I felt so empowered. And I felt running this organization is the best thing that ever um, happened to me. Then people on the ground start learning about what I do here. So people will call my mom and they thank her. She don't even know. It was like, oh, people are calling me and say, I was like, you speak in the radio. So in 2009, when President, uh, ex-president of Sudan, uh, Omar al-Bashir, was indicted by the International Criminal Court, mm-hmm. I spoke press conference, I didn't know that I become like sensation. People (laughs) (laughs) calling and, oh, wow, you become our voice. Like people that I went to elementary school with them, living like in Canada or in the UK or in Libya or in the Middle East, they were just calling me and talking and appreciating that. I felt, okay. How wonderful. Um, Unfortunately, we are unable to end the genocide, but we are able to show our people that we can do it for Mm -hmm. ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that is how I like came about what I do. So I will uh, stop here and see if you have more questions. We have so many more Thank questions <laughs> that arise also from this. <laughs> wonderful yeah. story that you're telling and thank you so much. It's so moving and so deep and 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 so insightful I think um to your own experience and then and then some experiences I think that are um more universal. And so I have a couple questions about that. I think you mentioned early on in your story here that um, that you didn't know initially that this was genocide, right? And why would one know, right? This genocide sort of betrays its own intentions over time and through patterns. And I think that's a problem that a lot of groups face, is that the state will have some design for them, right? It'll have a plan, and but it takes a while for populations to figure out that they're now being targeted with this master plan for genocide. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how you figured that out, right? And how people in your community began to see, wow, this is, this is a larger plan that's happening. Mm-hmm. And, and sort of what that adaptation response was like and, and, you know, and whether or not you have suggestions for how we can make prevention much more useful to people on the ground as they're trying to assess what's going on around them. Okay, great. I think this is a very important question. Uh, the way we knew was you have an incident like what happened to me once. You go to the police station, try to open a case, they don't, they dismiss your mm. concern. Like, ah, probably this is a thief. Then you hear from people from that village, they say, oh, actually, 
the army from the government army from that army barricade they came to our village and we know so and so and then you learn uh, after work that someone who live in your neighborhood have been given uniform and uh, and and weapon wow. so like my sister lives like right neighboring with um, some people from the Arab tribe they are all having now uniform and so they said mm. if something were to happen they're the one who go and then you see that the government start making statements like uh, al-bashir would like go to al-fashir and say kill them all i don't mm-hmm. want to see mm-hmm. a war prisoner um like you have to clean them up and things like that mm-hmm. and you see the sense people in the people we live with them for years they're changing now these mm-hmm. are not the people that we know this is not the people that mm-hmm. we went to school with then you realize oh and then you go back and see okay these people have been doing this for years so it started killing first it started by killing the most prominent business people the most prominent leaders and they are uh, start like economically weakening us uh dismissing people from their jobs then the killing was just the last thing but yeah the trigger the last trigger that open your mind is the killing yeah. so uh what i suggest to us in the in anti genocide movement and that's something that i talk about it that genocide doesn't happen in an overnight it, it takes like miseducation misinformation brainwashing azerization of people and then undermining the people to the level that then the kids they set the stage for killing because you educated someone wrongly to believe that this person has no value right. and then mm-hmm. the killing exactly. starts this is the last stage it's hard to remedy mm-hmm. the the in fact because it's the last stage so mm-hmm. in order for us like we need to educate people about the early warning system mm-hmm. uh, early warning signs of genocide the genocide stage is that uh, professor greg has written and mm-hmm. um many of you have talked about it that is important for people to know on the ground mm-hmm. um uh, head speeches yes. uh mm-hmm. yeah. which is like when the government start talking about tribe mm-hmm. about from a certain region people from mm-hmm. certain religions watch out for those and stop them like to start like rally people behind mm-hmm. and it, most importantly also educate the people who are the target of that right mm-hmm. open their mm-hmm. eyes and mm-hmm. then empower them they so that they can stand up for themselves mm-hmm. because they will be sitting until like the last minute and it will be really hard like if we knew that like millions of people would not have been or thousand a hundred of thousands would not have been killed in that for people who are just staying in their villages and then all of a sudden it was like really is this a people don't even know the name of the president right. in the remote villages yeah right exactly so i i do think education early warning mm-hmm. signs uh and then empowering the affected communities if you see there is marginalization there is um discrimination mm-hmm. uh in any country um those science uh, start like by working investing in people mm-hmm. and to the international communities that like investing in people better than investing in anything else yeah. uh, some yeah. we get caught up in some other like areas but if mm-hmm. we don't invest in people the people who are targeted for killing from holocaust up to date or from armenian genocide mm-hmm. up to date always there are people who are out of the circle they are not part of decision making they are not part of the power sharing they are not part of the wealth sharing so they are already in a in a weak position to mm-hmm. fight for themselves even by just speaking up mm-hmm. and that is what we need to change absolutely that's very very well put i'm just going to quickly ask a follow up question um okay. or just ask you to expand a little bit uh this is something that Irene and i uh talk a lot about which is the fact that you know I, and I think Darfur was a particularly heartbreaking example of this but the fact that the international community so rarely intervenes externally um and when it does so rarely intervenes in a way that is even helpful to the people involved that so much genocide prevention needs to be done locally and its local communities you know grassroots communities that need to be empowered to do that over the long term starting now right mm-hmm. starting decades before things get to the point of mass killing as you're pointing out um 
you know, and I think that Darfur is such a tragedy. Some of our listeners may remember this, but the United States found that uh, that Sudan, the government of Sudan, was committing genocide in Darfur. In 2004, uh, Colin Powell, who was then the Secretary of State um, under the Bush administration, decided that this was genocide, called it genocide officially. And yet the United States stated simply because it's recognizing genocide doesn't mean it needs to act to stop genocide. And, um, you know, so so we now have an international community that um, that can recognize genocide, maybe, but still does not have what it needs <laughs> to uh, effectively intervene. Um, and so I would like to hear more of your comments about how how people can think about empowering the grassroots and supporting local marginalized communities so that they can stand up for themselves, right? So what are some ways in which you've thought about that? Because you've been working in it all your life, right? So Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think first about the international community, they has failed. Mm-hmm. All the genocide victims all the way along from the Holocaust up to now. Uh, and their like the indifference was number one thing. If mm-hmm. it doesn't affect them, it doesn't affect. Uh, they are not getting serious about it. Um, number two is also most people talk about human rights issues as like something just for sure of to do, but they don't have an in-depth, like really commitment mm-hmm. and passion about it. Mm-hmm. So, and then they also look like for top-down approaches to solution right. versus bottom-up solution that focus on people. Mm-hmm. So what I do is that there are certain three pillars, um, education and awareness, and holding politicians accountable is the number one mm-hmm. something that we have to continue to do. Uh, recruit, working, like investing in ordinary citizens, like rally people because people have the power and when they speak, they can compel these people to listen. And then also looking at like investing resource in the grassroots people within the communities that mm-hmm. are affected. Because if we can empower these communities and create linkage between them, like, for instance, like right now, we as our organization work with Bihar, work with our friends from Rwanda. Mm-hmm. It's so empowering to see that kind of connection, but there's not much funding available for you to do mm-hmm. that more That's to learn, right. certainly, grow mm-hmm. lessons from various situations that are impacted. So, mm-hmm. we also have a mistake sometimes, and I think Dr. Lisa, we talk about this earlier in our symposium that we talk to government officials, try to influence them. We don't talk to funders like right. donors. Um, like, oh, the large funders, they don't talk about genocide. Nobody mm-hmm. did the research for um, all the um, foundations and the richest people in the world. They contribute, but none of them contribute to genocide prevention. Right. So can we make that a priority and make sure mm-hmm. that we get some people who adopt it so that they are not playing politics, but they are allocating money and funding to prevent genocide by mm-hmm. investing in people who are impacted by genocide. Yes. investing in people who are working in the movement and so this these are like really important things but also creating policies in place mm-hmm. if we have policy place whereby like strengthening the u.s prevention effort strengthening african union prevention effort strengthening mm-hmm. u.n prevention of effort and then like sudan right now is undergoing through an interim period so can we create like atrocity prevention a strategy in Sudan so that from now it's not just peace building, it's not conflict resolution, mm-hmm. it's atrocity prevention, which is broader mm-hmm. than both and can include both. Yes. So we have um, justice and accountability, we have peace building, we have restoration of people's right to their stolen properties and all of that. Uh, so we have like kind of a, a comprehensive integrated approach to genocide prevention, not just like taking, oh, peace building, we only want to talk about peace, we don't want to talk about genocide, mm-hmm. which is yeah, so I, I think that's the way to go. But um, yeah. it's, it's not an easy way, but I see hope that we can influence uh, more people and educating young people. Yes. It's the biggest investment. Students have been a part of the Darfur anti-genocide movement, and they one day they would become leaders. So mm-hmm. that's where to invest in them. Excellent. Excellent points. Thank you for those points. I agree with you fully. As so often is the case. 
I just Happy. wanted to add, Nima, thank you so much for sharing your, your personal story. I wanted to say that just a reflection and then ask you a couple of questions. Um, I'm thinking that probably a lot of those big funders don't give money for genocide prevention because they're actually, in many cases, complicit with genocide. So we have to think of ways on how to prevent genocide. There's such an economic part of genocide. Mm -hmm. And I think many of those funders um, can be found complicit and probably have no interest actually in preventing genocide. So we must find a way on how to work around that or how to educate them and convince them uh, how important it is genocide prevention. And it actually benefits everyone economically. It's a more equal, of course, economic scenario for everyone. So, yeah. but I, yeah, go ahead. No, please, Nimat. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. The reason sometimes funders they, they don't want to involve in genocide prevention because of their economic interest, because of political interest, and they don't understand that if we have lesser conflict or crisis around the world, we have more healthier yes. people, we have more productive people. Mm -hmm. So if you want to do business, do business with people who can produce instead right. of exactly. keeping weapon, produce economic goods and other like things that the world needs so so desperately need today. So if you have like for instance like multiple uh, countries in Africa are going through crisis in the in the Middle East and in Southeast Asia, if we can get all those people to be, uh, to the workforce, yes. get them into the business, entrepreneurs. And all of that, imagine. Imagine. Yes. Making business, they will make even more money. Yes. So, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I always think so, and I have this argument. And absolutely, they are accomplices in most cases because they are like many countries have been investing in the Sudan oil. So that's why they back Sudan in the UN Security Council, and some mm -hmm. countries have been selling weapons like China and Russia to Sudan, and then. Some countries, like they are investing in gold in Sudan, some European countries like France. And so because of all of that, they're seeing a genocide, they recognize it, they couldn't do enough to stop it. Certainly. This is something Elisa and I exchange a lot always. On what I, I'm not an economist, right? And I, I don't know really how much money some people are probably making out of conflict. But definitely, as you said, Yamat, probably... If you give so much work to so many people that are now left aside, the world will become a better place and these people will certainly be richer. But I guess it's, it's not the situation. So we have to somehow work on that and work towards that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, yeah, go ahead. No, I wanted to ask you, Nimat, I, I, you mentioned, you know, gender inequality in, in Sudan and that you, you know, I, I've listening to to your personal story i i have two highlights one is the sense of community that you had in your town and that impacted me a lot uh, i don't think one can find that so much in big cities in the west anymore and not even in in latin america i would say and i wanted to know what how how the genocide has impacted on that sense of community since usually genocide tends to destroy those those links of solidarity and cooperation amongst people. And my other question is related to gender inequality. As you said, women were even forced to stay in Sudan because they're women and they cannot leave. And uh, how do you address that with your work since it has to be such a change in the roots of, of uh, uh, sort of, I would say that the popular uh, or the people's existence in 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 your region. Uh, yeah, it's very true that you said the sense of community. There are things that after a genocide they will never be the same. Mm -hmm. uh, like when people are driven, some of them go to Chad, some of them go to Kenya, some of them go to Egypt, mm -hmm. and and they go under very different circumstances. They sometimes like even sisters and brothers they can no longer be those like loving and supportive sisters because they just come with different culture right and and then also like someone like me i live in like a house with 10 people you eat and share together and i'm like here i am sitting in my house in most cases by myself i had to work and do that so you always have the, this huge gap in your mm -hmm. life so those are things that the genocide leave it in your life mm -hmm. and when 
go back, then yeah, people are very loving. And, and this is something I was amazed by it. Like when I went back to Sudan, I was worried that things has changed people. But uh, I, like, it was amazing to see how people, even though have been through all the brutalities and cruel uh, ways of life, they maintain the values of supportive, the generosity. Believe me, like I spent two months there, at least a month and a half in my hometown. People are with us from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. I never get the chance mm-hmm. to see my mom and, and my wow. oh. our people. Sometimes like, I, I can't even have a place to sit. Like we sit on <laughs> chairs, beds and small, small chairs and then then the floor. Then after I will be sitting in like the, <laughs> the, the steps of the the room in front of the room because there's no place for me to sit because we have more visitors coming. Everyone come to you carrying their food, their gifts. Mm. And I'm like, oh my God, with all my years in America, what I could do to people like yeah. mm-hmm. really of a value that can match their generosity, their mm-hmm. love. And and then they also, I didn't know with all the censorship that they know what I was doing. They were like, oh, you have to organize a big symposium for us <laughs> to hear you about all what you've been doing. You've been doing this and we learn and we know at this point there was this problem that, so wow. that is the resilience. And then also Beautiful. when mm-hmm. people are under attack, they hold on to their values, but they yes. knew that this is a genocide. They knew that mm-hmm. they're culturally targeted, that they're so societal as a community. They were like targeted because of their ethnicity, because of their culture and historical heritage. Now, even more, they're tied together. Amazing. So that is something that I was like, I went and I came back as a new person. Definitely. It cleared my heart. Oh. But then there are so many challenges, mm-hmm. the insecurity, the shooting, the uh, the, yeah. the violence that in, in the community. There is no jobs. Young people. Yes. Do, the trauma that the society goes through. It. So mm. the challenge is now what we want to do through our organization to make sure that we and other organizations working there. So we have to do the work, but we also have to advocate for other NGOs to invest in trauma counseling, invest in education, sending women to to go to school to come back to counsel their society, to yeah. work within the their society That's and in, like improving life livelihood for them um so these are the things that we definitely want to do and make sure that they are addressed mm. and the gender gap unfortunately there are now the violence the mystic violence that there is the violence against women that perpetrated by the perpetrator and there is domestic mm-hmm. violence as a result of the roma yeah. So now there is more domestic violence in our community than than mm. ever before. So wow. are the things that the aftermath of genocide and it is still uh, the situation in Darfur hasn't been resolved. The Janjaweed are still there. There has been change in government, but it's still people living in internal displacement come nearly two million or two million and a half people. Mm. Wow, displaced camps and refugee camps. And they are not protecting. They are still under attack. When they go, try to go to their farm, now that we have a new government, they were shut and told that this land doesn't belong to them. Wow. So it, it is a long way to go, but I see the light at the end of the tunnel that mm-hmm. if we can invest in the people themselves, mm-hmm. people who are impacted, people now people in the internal displaced camp are more like enlightened, Huh. more unified, mm-hmm. more knowing what they are doing more than people in the big cities because these people build the brunt of genocide and right, they sure. are so eager to re- exactly. rebuild their life. Mm-hmm. So that is where the investment is uh, we need to make and DWAC is very committed to empowering women right now. Our organization, sometimes from the name, people think we only work with women. We work with women, men and children. Mm-hmm. But our condition is a woman has to be in the top leadership. That's great. Ah, I love that. That's really great. Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about DWAG. You've mentioned when it was founded, right? And that you're now focusing on um, IDP camps, right? And and, mm-hmm. and empowering the people who've borne the brunt of, of genocide. So tell us more about DWAG and also tell our well, listeners how to uh, get involved. 
Yes, recently are able to expand and open um, uh, our work in Sudan. So we are working with um, training women to participate in the constitutional making in Sudan so that uh, so that we integrate women. The constitution is the highest law in the land. So it's important to have a permanent but also inclusive constitution that resolves sure. all the issues. And women's voice is important. So we, we want a grant in partnership with the ABA mm. from the U.S. government. We are doing that. We are on the process to also like working on gender-based violence prevention. We have an office in D.C. and now we have a nationally based DWAC that is with five staff and we have volunteers and six women focal point from six cities um, so who are working and organizing their communities. We have two things. We recently um, uh, published uh, um, a strategic framework for women inclusion and empowerment in the Republic of Sudan. We also Amazing. wrote a, a strategic planning, strategic framework for sustainable change in the Republic of Sudan that was nice. back then delivered to the government, to the stakeholders and the civil society group about how to permanently resolve this within the context of atrocity prevention. Wow. The, the strategic framework is just recently launched in my trip to Sudan. It was adopted by all the civil society groups. Mm. And we are in the process to create a national women network and a national unified women agenda for change so that we can mainstream women's priorities into all public institutions in Sudan. And hopefully by the time when there is election, we have more women in office. Yeah, so it's not an easy job, but... <laughs> I know, I can see. <laughs> That's why it's 24 seven, like you said. It's Monday to Monday. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Amazing. And, uh, one quick question, Nimat. Were women yeah. involved in the yeah. peace agreement yeah. at all? And I am. Um, having another appointment so just yeah be brief and yes oh yes sure. Nimad yeah, has to yeah, go one, that's I just, like, <laughs> I sure no that's okay we can leave it for for next time we yeah can talk we'll a plan for next time mm -hmm. we have questions about you know the political situation now in sudan and hearing more about the way forward but perhaps we can have you back on to talk about in depth your strategic framework because i think this yes. is really going to be an important model coffee whereby i'll be sitting here drinking my coffee the sudanese way and make you guys excited but you can't even get it <laughs> <laughs> Basically, I'm inviting you post-COVID-19 yes. to come to my home uh, with oh. and then I will read your portion. What does, how's that sound? Oh, you will? That, that, sounds, would, that sounds great. That, we that can't sounds wait. like the plan. That is a great <laughs> plan. I love it. So you can get to know me out of the genocide prevention. Yes. Um, that would be lovely. Oh, that would be so lovely. That would be so wonderful. Well, we cannot thank you enough, Nimat. You have given us an hour of your time. So we oh, are I, so thankful. I'm so pleased to have this opportunity. I'm just so wonderful. Like I'm just like speaking nonstop because you two wonderful people that I wanted to speak to them forever. Yeah. Uh, please stay in touch and let us work together. Definitely, sure. definitely, Nima. <laughs> Thank so you so we're much. We're going to say goodbye to you and then we'll finish the podcast with our listeners and we'll let them know how to get in touch with DWAG, right? And how to Absolutely. help out in your efforts. Great. And then you have to make time to talk about our catch-up. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. yes, I will call you. Get back to me. And thank you, Annie, for uh, so much for doing this with this wonderful uh, lady here. <laughs> and we support you all the way to make this like really a global podcast that people can come to to be a part of you. Thank you so much. Thank you thank so you, much. Emma. Thank you so much. Have a uh, great afternoon. Bye bye. Thank bye. you. Bye bye. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Irena. And we want to thank Nimat for spending almost a total hour with us today talking about her experiences we'll definitely have Nimat back on please do visit um dwag on the world wide web you can find out more about what it is that they do um and certainly feel but free let me to give get you involved. the address here yeah. right, i'll give you the website address this darforwomenaction.org 
Okay, great. So visit Darfur Women Action, one word, dot org to get involved and to learn more. Um, we hope you all have enjoyed today's podcast and we hope you all have a wonderful week. We look very, very forward to joining you again next week with your coffee to continue this ongoing discussion about genocide prevention in today's world. Do you have any last thoughts, Irena? No, just thank you, Elisa, for having this wonderful guest. Well, yeah, we always we have, all we have such our great guests, guests. Have been wonderful. Yeah. But I, I didn't know Nima, so it has been such a pleasure for me and and her personal story uh, to listen to her personal story and everything, and her views and her work. They're amazing. They're such an inspiration to us. Yeah. So thank you, Nima, and thank you, Elisa. Thank you all. Have a wonderful week. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.